Are you on the RCR mailing list? Never miss a beat of the news and hard-hitting stories you've come to know and love. Stay in the loop. Visit realitycheck.radio forward slash email. Welcome back, listeners, to RCR Greenwashed. And uh, as we've been doing a bit lately, we've been looking back and seeing who our best guests have been over time. And one of those that is right at the pinnacle of that is uh, Professor Ian Plymer. And, of course, uh, we've been watching and waiting what's going to happen in COP28 this week. And I thought, who better to have on but Professor Plymer and give his prognosis for COP28. But, you know, ahead of all that, and welcome, Ian, Welcome back to RCR. I know Thank you've you. been on it a couple of other times, but ahead of all that, I want to know your analysis of that mighty cricket game when the Aussies beat the Indians because <laughs> Jaspreet's, Jaspreet's, she's dwell, Reed's dwelling on the past and it's, it's a bit tough on her, really. I think she probably had a bet on and she lost. Well, we geologists deal with the past and like a lot of Kiwis, I'm very fond of my cricket. And the Indians had such a good run. They was, were a run-scoring machine. And I just didn't think the Australians could have won that game at all, not, not against the ending batting lineup. And for me, it was quite a surprise. I'm not a betting man. If I'd had a bet, I wouldn't have put it on Australia. I would, I would have bet on India. So it was a bit of a surprise to the Australian cricket team, I think, because they, they got to the finals. But uh, you look at the India Kiwi game. I mean that that was that was just a slaughter. Uh, so, um, and and when you see batsmen performing like that, you think, well, you know. But you know, you, it's the luck of the game. There are a couple of good catches taken. There was a um, one of the great Indian batsmen played on. I mean, they, these are things which make the game interesting. Mm-hmm. Horrible pitch. I mean, I'd, I'd love to have the Indians on our Australian pitches, which are like concrete. Just give the fast bowlers a, a bit of a go. Uh, but it, it surprised me. I, I didn't think we could make it. I agree, Ian. And Don, will I get my own back sometime? You bet <laughs> I will. Well, it wasn't a very good Australian <laughs> cricket team either, in my view. No, but I, I think the Indians, Indians folded in quick succession uh-huh. really, yeah. really rapidly. Yeah. Well, I've never held, held too much willow in my hand, so I'm not a very um, – I haven't got much to say about cricket. I just – I know there's winners and losers, and you lost this time. Uh, and, I know, and Don knows, Ian, that cricket is one place where my loyalty is divided. Otherwise, I am a New Zealander now. I you know, had to renounce my Indian citizenship a few years ago to get the New Zealand passport. But this is where my loyalties do remain divided, unabashedly but so. Isn't this a fantastic hangover from the British Empire, where mm-hmm. if you're in India or in this country, if you've got an Indian taxi driver, you start the conversation about talking about cricket. It's a very dangerous thing to do in India because they can quote statistics on games that happened 60 years ago. And I, I find whenever I go to India, that is the, the great unifying thing, cricket. And the second thing is they speak English. And the third thing is that I think they they have a, a democratic system that does lurch along, but it actually is a democratic system. And I'm just hoping that they can accelerate overtaking China as the biggest economic force in the world. Because they they have got some of the benefits of the uh, British Empire, and that is cricket and the English language and the legal system and the railway system. But they've also maintained so much of the uniqueness about India, where it's a marvellous country with so many religions, different castes, 
and different cultures, yet it works. It sort of works. And within the, the, the chaos are threads where you, you can see progress. So I, I find it's quite a remarkable culture. And if only cricket was played by all the castes and not just got the upper castes, uh, India would always win. I mean, they've just got <laughs> so many people. You go to any back street in any village in India yes, and the game on playing cricket. It's fabulous. Mm. Yep. There's always a game on. I, I think, you know, now looking back in hindsight and from this distance being in New Zealand now, I think part of India works because it's not a welfare state. There is nothing as, you know, and pretty much the whole, the government is quite small when you look at it. That's a country of 1.5 billion. They might try their darndest to regulate you to within an inch of your lives. But the point is, ultimately, no one really cares because no one is dependent on the government. There is a, something called as a BPL, below poverty line, but all you get in that uh, is uh, benefits in kind, rice pulses and so on. Yes. There is, I think, states where welfare gets really big, we have a problem, don't we, Don? Well, I, that's a fabulous point. I've never considered that, but that, that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. It's not a welfare state. Yeah, quite, quite different. And Jasper has noticed, she's often commented to me about the massive difference to here, but I Sticking with the cricket parlance, um, the curveball is to you, Ian. Um, what did you make of the voice to parliament um, fiasco? Uh, is it Pr- um, Prime Minister Albanese's uh, swan song? Really? Did he did he stuff it up? Well, I think he did. Um, to not put it to the people before the election and put it after he was elected is a cardinal sin. The second thing is that to claim that we are going to have a referendum as to whether we are going to have apartheid or not, um, I, I think it's just appalling. Um, I've lived in South Africa. Uh, you just don't want that situation. So I think he made a fundamental political error. People were frightened about speaking their minds because they just got attacked and cancelled and they kept their they kept their opinions for the ballot box. Hmm. Well, it, it's interesting. I used to say on in, in shows gone by on this that uh, Australia only had to look to New Zealand to see sort of exhibit oh, yes. number well, that, one. That argument was used a lot. Yes. And um, that 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 went uh, very noticed, what happened in New Zealand. Mm. And the, a lot of the arguments that were brought up were quite facile and people were aware that this was, in effect, going to be uh, a new tax on land, that uh, we were going to get another tax, and that was to pay for people who claim they're Indigenous. Now, I was born in Australia, therefore I'm an Indigenous, and we've had multiple waves of people coming for the accepted figure 65,000 years, but there's a little bit of scientific evidence to show that it might be older than that, it might be 125,000 years in Warrnambool in Victoria. And like Europe and like other countries, um, each wave comes in and almost wipes out the other one and they interbreed. And we were talking off air before we came on the program about the magazine The Spectator, and I have an article from a recent trip to Crete. Now, I've just looked at the history of people who've invaded Crete, and you have to ask the question, who is a Cretan? Is it a Dorian with blue eyes? Is it someone with Arabic features? Is it someone mm. with Greek features? They've spoken a number of languages in the past. They had a hieroglyphic system which still hasn't been uh, able to be translated that the Minoans brought there. Now, they've been invaded and invaded and invaded and invaded. And this is what has happened in Europe, and this is certainly what's happened in Australia with multiple invasions of people. And 
the concept of Australia didn't exist to the Aboriginals. What we had were tribes, and you were a member of your tribe, and we do the same now with our football. We're a member of this tribe or that tribe, mm. and their boundaries were a little bit flexible, and they were constantly at war and are involved in infanticide and genocide, everything else that tribes have done over the last thousands of years. So the whole concept of an Aboriginal nation um, has to be challenged. And even in New Zealand, there is questions about who were the first people in New Zealand uh, pre, say, 1300. There is there is a discussion that's hidden from mainstream that there were other people uh, but, resident in the north of the North Island. But, Don, it doesn't even matter at this point. My children were both born here. If yeah, you ask sure. them who are they, they tell the guys that I'm a Kiwi. Yeah. That's, that's what they are. And if you go to India, these two, I mean, even I am now, we're not covered under insurance. If we need any help, we need to register at the local police station and we go in all of this. So what what are they supposed to claim? Where are they indigenous to now? There's, someone needs to draw a line in the sand and tell us what success looks like, right? How far are you going to push this? And I think Australia at least did one better. They at least attempted to have a referendum. Out here in New Zealand, it's just snuck in between co-governance and doing the right by Maori and Pacifica, it's it's just gone unnoticed. We've not even tried to see what the people want. And in case someone dares say something, there comes a stock standard answer, pale steel white male or you're a racist, if it's me. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, the, the, this is standard. If you haven't got an argument, you call someone a, a racist, or you call them a climate skeptic or a heretic, uh, but you don't address the argument. And I mm -hmm. think people in Australia... Um, kept their powder dry and yeah. they just waited to the election and I think they realised the government was trying to fool them and I don't think they've forgotten that. So if Albanese were to call another election right now, I think he'd be in trouble. <laughs> and he, he's certainly in trouble because of inflation, because of the high energy costs and the fact that he's now called Airbus Albo. He's had 20 yeah. or 21 overseas trips since he's been in power in 18 months. Well, that's not bad. I used to do about 80 years when I was in the height of my career, but <laughs> he travels in a different style to the sort of travel I did. There's some cruel wag called him, um, was it Elbow the Albatross or Albatross Elbow? I thought that Albatross was Albatross Elbow or Airbus Elbow. Ah, there you go. Oh, that's cruel. But um, interestingly, an absent prime minister is not, a, well, maybe it's a good thing in your, in your situation, but I noticed your... Um, as I think he's your energy minister, Chris Bowen's um, drawing uh, drawing deep breaths to try and survive his push for renewable energy all around your countryside. Yeah, he's really well. He, he's the greatest thing that our conservative uh, politicians have, and I think <laughs> he should stay there and not change his policies. And what they're wanting to do is to put in the reverse grid, which you need for uh, wind and solar. And so, a lot mm. of prime agricultural land is being destroyed by uh -huh. solar panels and wind turbines, and farmers are very, very upset. On Thursday next week in Sydney, there's a, a demonstration of farmers from all over the country saying, no, we don't want our land spoiled by these wind turbines, these solar panels, and these uh, high-voltage lines which stop us using farm machinery underneath the lines. Uh, I'll be addressing that meeting, but uh, there will be thousands there. The, the organisers say 30,000. We can always knock a zero off that. But uh, there's, there's a lot of people very upset. So yep. uh, to try to force policies on people mm. rather than do what we should do in a, in a democracy is discuss them, um, I, I think is, is a large mistake. Now, New Zealand's made that mistake with the previous government of forcing policy, and these, these were 
quite serious social changes. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've had the same with our energy. We're, we're the most energy-rich country in the world. We've got thousands of years of uranium, thousands of years of coal, thousands of years of gas, not that much oil, but um, we, we do export oil from northern Australia. But we have so much energy, yet um, we are suffering energy shortage and high electricity prices. Uh, our liquid petroleum comes over the seaways from the super refineries in Singapore and India. Now, if you've only got to have one ship stop a mm-hmm. tanker coming into Australia and no insurance company will um, insure any other tankers, so you could very quickly stop all the supply of liquid uh, petroleum to Australia and I just think that we've got so much coal and so much really dreadful coal that you can't burn anyway why don't we do what Germany did when it was isolated in the second world war what South Africa did when it was isolated with the embargoes and use a process we've known about since the 1920s and convert coal into liquid um, hydrocarbons because we we rely on diesel Every agriculture nation relies on diesel. You need diesel to plough. You need it to seed. You need it to weed. You need it to harvest. And then you need it to process. And then you need it to take that food to the cities. So we have got um, massive resources in this country, yet there's no commensurate policy uh, to use those resources and to grow the country. Interestingly, interestingly, Ian, about 30 kilometres from me uh, was that very process mooted and in fact the very first stage of a briquette plant was put in for for the um, use of the low grade brown coal and it was they were talking about brown coal to diesel using some south african technology i recall yeah now, the, that was the, that, the sassol process right and the germans used it in the ruhr in in the second world war where right. they had a lot of brown coal the sassol process works yeah well it's all been mothballed Completely yeah. multiplied all the yeah. land that was purchased has all been given back to farm, sold back to farming. Solid Energy, which was an SOE, a state-owned enterprise at the time, bought the land and took the farmers uh, on board and said, "Look, we're going to do all X, Y, Z. We're going to make all this fabulous diesel, and we're going to have urea as well, um, yes. nitrogen, all gone under um, under the green policies of well, recent here governments." Well, here is another sovereign risk threat mm-hmm. um, in New Zealand and in Australia. We are like any other Western country. There are four fundamental commodities we use. One of them is steel, for which you need coal. Uh, The second one is fertilisers, urea and ammonia. And for that, you need hydrocarbons, you need gas. Um, And to make urea in my country, which is a very expensive country to operate in, it's just not feasible. It is cheaper to import Russian urea than to make it ourselves. The third commodity that we need is cement to make concrete. And when you burn limestone, you put carbon dioxide in in the atmosphere. And I just love that because I've I've given up tree hugging. I've got a bit too rotund (laughs) for that. But instead of hugging trees and telling them I love them, I feed them with carbon dioxide. Uh, And I just love feeding them with plant food from burning liquid hydrocarbons or making cement. And the fourth great commodity we use in the modern world comes from uh, hydrocarbons, and that's plastics. Now, if you take any of those out of the system, the modern world collapses. Hmm. And interestingly, Jasper and I came across a paper from 1982, a United Nations paper from 1982 that said how great carbon dioxide was for the planet. How could 
How could they have changed so quickly? Uh, well, the that, that, that's years? a very simple situation. The United Nations now is dominated by third world countries. They can see this as a mechanism of the first world writing them checks. Yeah. Uh, they don't care about uh, the environment. It's all about money, and that money goes through many sticky fingers before it gets uh, into those countries, and the best solution to that is to leave the UN. Yeah, so um, that leads on, sorry, Jasper, that leads on to uh, COP28 in Dubai, 70,000 participants, according to the news readings uh, I've I've come across. Um, what the heck could 70,000 people come up with? How could uh, they? More, uh, they could come up with more taxes, more <laughs> ways of robbing the average farmer and the average person, more ways of enriching their pockets, more ways of drinking a better quality champagne and eating better caviar because they will be travelling there in private yachts. They'll be travelling there in private jets. Um, they are telling the average person to cut back their carbon dioxide emissions. They're doing that from a country that is a petroleum-producing country. They're doing it uh, by transporting themselves there by burning liquid fuels. Uh, this is sheer rank hypocrisy and basically... Uh, I, I think um, we should go to COP and uh, call out the hypocrisy. Now, most of those 70,000 are not the decision makers. These are the people that are beneficiaries of frightening us witless about climate change. They're hanging onto the coattails. They've got some charming people that you wouldn't invite to meet your grandmother, like Greenpeace and a lot of the uh, loopy left NGOs and, and politicians. A lot of bureaucrats get their jaunt, um, and we pay for it all. And I just think it's quite perverse. We pay for all of this, and the end result of that is rather than having something that benefits us, the end result is we pay even more. And we know from satellite imagery that places like the Middle East where um, we haven't got much vegetation, but we know from the very slight increase in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere over the last 40 years, we've had a greening of, of the deserts. So... Um, we know that carbon dioxide is wonderful plant food. It's good for you. And the real problem we have in the, over the history of time is that for the last 500 million years, the atmospheric carbon dioxide content has been decreasing from 0.7 to 0.04%. And if we halved it, we lose all vegetation. If we lose all vegetation, we lose all life on Earth. So what we should be doing is what the uh, one of the founders of Greenpeace suggested, and that's Patrick Moore, and Patrick is, he lives on Vancouver Island. I know Patrick, he's a, a plant ecologist. He wrote a forward to one of my books. Uh, I think it was the book, How to Get Expelled from School. And Patrick's arguing that we should be burning as much coal and fossil fuel as possible to help plant life on Earth. We should be actually helping plant life survive uh, the inevitable environmental crisis that is coming, and that is there's not enough plant food. So to sequester it, to ban it, to tax it is madness. It is. To quote you, Ian, in one of your recent uh, articles on the Red Beds, you said words like money, control, authoritarianism and Marxism come to mind. What COP28 is also doing is going to align finance now. Align finance, create a corpus of wealthy countries or supposedly wealthy countries, because I can tell you I don't see much wealth in New Zealand right now. I don't see much in the UK where I have family and friends. For them to pay reparations, and Australia has taken a lead. You're the first country in the world to offer permanent residency to Tuvalu's population of 11,000. It's a world-first agreement to give residency to climate refugees. Your thoughts on that, please? Well, you just quoted from a Spectator article that came out today, 
Mm-hmm. My previous Spectator article was about Tuvalu also, and it was how we actually should reintroduce blackbirding. And this is where we went to the Pacific Islands and we persuaded fit young men to come onto the ship and we kidnapped them and took them uh, to work on the farms. Now, I can see a great advantage of blackbirding. In Australia, we'd go to uh, the islands. We would blackbird these young, fit uh, men. We'd put them in schools, giving them an education, but we put them in schools that focused on rugby. And these are in Queensland and New South Wales. And we ultimately then might enrich the super rugby competition. We might actually get a few decent players in the Wallabies side. We might actually be able to beat the All Blacks. And the great thing about this, it's a win-win because these kids then making all the money out of rugby would send it back home and it would save the Australian taxpayer having to put money into into that part of the world. But these kids might also learn that if they went to school, they would learn what Charles Lyell wrote in 1833 in his book about coral atolls. And he argued that they grew on top of uh, volcanoes Volcanoes. subsided and the atoll kept growing. And that really inspired Charles Darwin, who had a copy of that book on his voyage of the Beagle. And in 1842, he wrote a, a book about coral atolls. And in 1896 to 1898, the Royal Geographical Society and the New South Wales government funded Professor Sir Edgeworth Dave to drill a drill hole in Kiribati through the coral, hopefully getting to that basalt volcano, and he only drilled 900 feet and still didn't hit it. And um, But it still proved the idea of Lyle of 1833. And then the Americans did that when they drilled Bikini Atoll, and they drilled quite a few holes, but it was only when they got down to about 4,000 metres that they hit the volcano that had been subsiding for 15 million years. And that is the same as when the coral's growing on a subsiding volcano. That's the same as a sea level rise. And that was replicated by the French uh, when they wanted to do their nuclear testing in the Pacific. That was replicated by the Royal Geographical, uh, sorry, the Royal Hydrographical Institute that surveyed the atolls of the Pacific and showed that they were growing. And then some work done by some uh, Kiwi scientists at Auckland looked at the last 40 years of satellite imagery and showed that the atolls had been growing over time, except for one or two where people had taken coral to build roads, to make cement or to make buildings. And that was replicated yet again by some work by another scientific uh, project uh, looking at the 1,100 atolls in the Indian Pacific Oceans. So we've now had validation for almost 200 years that if sea level rises, then Pacific atolls, Pacific Island atoll nations, they get bigger, they grow. There was no necessity for a refugee policy. So we've known that. So my argument is that we should go blackbirding, grab some of these kids, bring them to Australia, train them up to be the great rugby players, and the All Blacks finally might get a bit of competition from the Wallabies. Well, don't tell Antonio Guterres, your, Guterres that, uh, Ian, because you'll bugger up his conference at, uh, at Dubai. <laughs> they hey, should invite me to conferences like this. I can they, entertain them with yeah. using facts, and I, yes. I have to speak the truth. They don't yeah. have to. No, no, that's true. Um, and, in fact, you wonder how politicians can be so seduced in all of our Western countries. Why have they been so seduced by this nonsense? Hey, could we... Yeah, go back to your um, story of red beds and the spectator today. I found it um, very interesting. I mean, you go back in time. I, I, my knowledge is that the 
the Earth is about 4.6 billion years old, but how the hell do you talk about 460 million and 300 million and 200 million and all those sort of periods? Is is well, it's stunning to me. It, it teaches me a whole lot of stuff. And what you're saying in this article, can I paraphrase it, is that over time, um, geology tells us what's what's occurred and what's likely to occur based on the past and where we are now. And yeah. right now, there's nothing going to happen that's significant. No, there's, look, there's, there's nothing surprising that's happening on planet Earth at present. Mm-hmm. And we go back in time, and we've got this, these time periods in geology as a result of Charles Darwin's work um, uh, on evolution. Mm-hmm. And eventually then people were able to get the ages of rocks, the relative ages from fossils, and then with radioactive decay, get the, the absolute numbers. Um, so we mentioned Darwin earlier, and we go back to him. He, he, was, he was probably the greatest scientist that's ever lived on planet Earth with the greatest idea that's ever happened. And so we're able to look back in time, and we can measure cycles. We can measure cycles of climate, which uh, are based on pulling apart and stitching back to over the continents. We can measure cycles of climate based on where we are in the galaxy, cycles of climate based on wobbles in the Earth's orbit, which are 100,000, 40,000, 20 years. We can go into cycles of climate based on solar cycles, which are multiples of 22 years, and then the big grand solar minimum and grand solar maximum, which are on greater multiples. Then we can have oceanic cycles of 60 years and lunar tidal cycles of 18.6 years. So we see all of that in the past. And unless the laws of physics and chemistry have changed, then we're going to have the same in the future. But there are a few wild cards in there. And another argument I once put up uh, pertaining to rugby was about supervolcanoes. And the wild cards are that you occasionally get a supervolcano. We've had them in Yellowstone. We've had them in Indonesia, where I was the other day on Tuesday, just went there for 17 hours. And um, we've had these supervolcanoes. Tobar was a huge one during the last glaciation 74,000 years ago. And that cooled the earth. Uh, sea level fall accelerated. We pretty well nearly became extinct. We humans went down to 4,000 breeding pairs. So one volcano can ruin your whole day, and a great supervolcano can completely change the global climate. And um, the Talpo volcanic zone is, is one uh, which, if you have a supervolcano, that for me would be absolutely fantastic. Because that would mean that the Wallabies wouldn't have a team to play against. <laughs> yeah, thanks for that doomsday. Um, <laughs> oh, I think you'd be right the South Island. But, yeah, uh, okay, all right. All right. Certainly, certainly the, the big boys oh. of the North Island, uh, a lot of the Maoris, et cetera, they, they, they'd be gone. That's helping us a lot. That, hey, um, just, hey, it's happened before. Just in New Zealand media recently, we've had um, uh, almost contrasting um media output about west antarctica and its ice uh ice melt uh you know that some people are saying it's it's stable and others are saying it's hellish and the world's going yeah the world got this massive sea level rise coming what's your take well i'd say your journalists should look at what the university of aberdeen has been doing on the 150 hotspots and volcanoes beneath the west antarctic ice sheet Mm-hmm. Um, you know about these. The uh, DSIR um, is very famous internationally for its work on the volcanic um, area in the Taupo Volcanic Province where you've got active volcanoes, where you've got geothermal fields. And just imagine if you covered that area of New Zealand with a few kilometres of ice, then some of that ice would melt. 
And volcanicity isn't constant. You get cycles of it, and there are periods of time when you get more volcanic activity, periods of time when you get less volcanic activity. And that's what's happening in Antarctica. In Antarctica, we have hot spots sitting beneath the ice that are melting the ice. Now, about uh, 30% of the heat that goes into the oceans comes actually from volcanic uh, material on the ocean floor. The other 70% comes from the sun. But we never consider volcanoes when it comes to dealing with climate. Uh, no. We, we really have to look at this very carefully. Now, one of the interesting things is, is we've had a continent at the South Pole for 300 million years. It did break up. Uh, bits of it broke off to form um, the, uh, South America. Oh, oh, sorry, we'll start with Gondwana. Uh, Gondwana broke up. Uh, and then bits kept breaking off. India broke off from Western Australia. South Africa, Australia, India, and South America had, had pulled away from Antarctica. And finally, when we had South America pull away about 34 million years ago, we set up a circumpolar current around Antarctica, and the warm tropical waters couldn't get there. So it froze. Now, Antarctica is a continent sitting at a pole. It's been frozen for uh, off and on for 300 million years. We have a continent there that is breaking up, which is why we've got the volcanic activity. It's starting to break into rifts and, and, and uh, little bits of Antarctica. And ultimately, when our Antarctica breaks up, we'll go back to what the planet has been for 80% of time. And that is warm, wet, high sea levels and no ice. So um, what's happening in Antarctica is, is quite normal. It's nothing surprising. It's got nothing to do with the temperature of the air. It's to do with the temperature beneath the ice. And we know that the position and shape of continents is a big driving force for um, climate change. Now, we're told that the Antarctic ice is melting, and we see this with the carving of ice off the glaciers. But we don't get told that the West Antarctic uh, ice sits in a basin and so for that ice to melt it's got to flow uphill <laughs> then it's got to flow downhill now that doesn't do it from melting the reason why it flows uphill is that ice is a bit like uh, any other plastic substance under pressure it behaves like a liquid and uh, when there's no pressure it behaves like a solid so you can push ice and it can flow and then you can uh, hit ice with a hammer and it will break now, people have measured the size of ice crystals in glaciers, and they've done that in your Franz Josef Glacier, and right at the head of the glacier are tiny little ice crystals, and when you get to the end of the glacier, they're very big ice crystals. So the ice just crystallises, recrystallises, recrystallises, recrystallises. That's the way it moves, and it can move uphill and it can move downhill. So, yes, we are getting ice moving uphill in Antarctica, but that's because of increased precipitation. Yes, we are getting um, ice melting in West Antarctic on the West Antarctic ice sheet, and that is because of volcanic and geothermal activity beneath the ice. But as soon as there's a natural process, all the catastrophists want to say, oh, it's climate change. But there's many other reasons for change on planet Earth besides climate. Oh, you're telling me, so my eating less meat won't help? <laughs> well, eating less meat uh, will affect uh, your body because you have enzymes to metabolize meat. Um, you have teeth for ripping meat off bones. Um, now, um, some countries like India um, are predominantly vegetarian. And so they over time evolved to have a different enzyme structure in their bodies. But you're not going to save the planet. 
from not eating meat because if you have agriculture, then uh, your emissions are very, very high also. And maybe the really important point is that no one has ever shown that human emissions of carbon dioxide drive global warming. No one's ever shown that human emissions of methane drive global warming also. So um, if you go right back to basics, we've got a house of cards built on that theory that human emissions drive global warming. And from that, we've had these ridiculous ideas of peppering, the spearing the country with wind turbines and covering prime agricultural land with solar panels and saying you can't travel here or there or fly here or there or eat meat or whatever. This is just madness. Now, currently in Adelaide, where I'm speaking to you from, we have a weekend of Super 8 racing cars. Now, these are the V8s. The boys are practicing at present. I'm talking to you from my downstairs study because there's huge noise. These boys are burning huge amounts of fossil fuel, uh, which I think is fabulous because that means that we're giving the plants of Adelaide more food, more plant right. food. So race around that track, boys. Oh, fantastic. And then, the, and then what about the wildfires that are happening at Perthian? Well, I flew over those uh, yesterday. Uh, these wildfires um, are interesting because more than 70% of all fires are deliberately lit. Uh, some of them come from people operating machinery that's sparking. Mm. Uh, a lot of them become more intense because we haven't cut in fire breaks or we haven't cleared off undergrowth in state-owned forests. And those people who like to um, wrap their arms around nature. We'll build a wooden house in the middle of a forest with um, eucalypt trees which explode when there's any um, heat around or plant pine trees around. If you really want to live in a forest, clear a couple of acres around the house and then put in European plants and, and they will operate as a heat and radiation shield from any fire. So these fires are historically not unprecedented. They're not great. And for some strange reason, we get fires in summertime when there's a lot of fuel around. We've had a lot of rain, so there's a lot of fuel there. Uh, when it's very windy, and I, as I said, I was in Perth yesterday and experiencing the, the, this weather. Um, but in the geological past, we've had far, far more um, oxygen in the atmosphere at one or two times. And I mentioned that in today's Spectator article. We currently have 21% oxygen in the atmosphere, but there were times when it was 35%. This is when little insects had wingspans of a metre. This is when we had massive global forest fires, and they went for time and time and time again for millions of years, so much so that all the vegetation was destroyed, and we see that with increased erosion rates and increased sedimentation rates. So, uh, again, um, just because we're getting increased forest fires, it doesn't mean that's due to global warming. In most cases, it's currently due to human stupidity. Mm. And and um, wrapping a bit of this well, this discussion up, we'd, we'd better draw it to a close very soon. Jess Preet's had a hell of a time at her local council. You know, she's doing God's work being a councillor. And there she is trying to defend the, um, the RCP concept. Uh, the councils around New Zealand, not just her one and my one, are um, talking about uh, coastal management using RCP 8.5. Worst case scenario from the IPCC, we're still using it in New Zealand. We're still using it for inland management as well, river management as well, actually. Um, what could you say to those councillors and councils? Because uh, the taxpayers and ratepayers of New Zealand know the bill is going to be sheeted home to them. And it appears these modellers just might be stitching them up. 
Well, a model is a model. It's not telling you what's happening. The second thing is that you have to be very wary of any measurement. You have to ask the question, who measured it? When was it measured? What was the equipment used? What is the order of accuracy of the equipment? What measurements were not used? What measurements were were used? And, And why did we throw out some measurements? Now, we have a situation going on here in part of South Australia where the local council is wanting to build a big seawall because apparently sea level is going to rise. And they're using IPCC figures plus they're using um, figures from uh, measuring stations. Now, one of these measuring stations, Port Adelaide, is a post sitting out in the harbour. And there was a gentleman from the South Australian Geological Survey about 20 years ago looked at the old survey records and, and this post is showing us that we're having an alarming sea level rise. And he went back and had a look at the measurements and was able to show that the post was sinking, mm-hmm. which looked as if it was a sea level rise. Now, uh, we only hear from the IPCC and local governments and, and um, uh, other governments about sea level rise. We never hear about the land level rise. Mm-hmm. And we've had land level rises and falls uh, going on, and they're still going on. For example, on your west coast and Australia's east coast, the Tasman is rifting. So what is happening is that each side is lifting up a little bit. And so that is giving you a a relative sea level fall. We find globally that we have rock platforms and a little nick just above that rock platform, about one to two metres above the rock platform. This is when sea level was at its maximum during our uh, present interglacial, and that maximum was about 7,000 to 4,000 years ago. And we've got shells there which we've been able to carbon date and work out exactly when we had a maximum sea level. So over the last 4,000 years, we've actually had a sea level fall with spikes of, of warmer periods, such as in Minoan, Roman and medieval times and spikes of colder periods, such as when the Vikings were around or um, in the Little Ice Age. So just to talk about sea level is only giving half the argument. The other half is what is the land level doing? We know parts of Scandinavia have risen 400 metres over the last 14,000 years, and that's because Scandinavia was covered with ice. The ice is gone and the land is now rising. So land goes up and down, and it goes up and down just as quick as sea level does. I've been to the biblical city of Ephesus, a port city, a Roman port city, 15 kilometres inland, seven metres above sea level. I've been to the ancient city of Lydia, the place where gold coins were first minted, and I went down the main street in a yacht. So uh, you cannot (laughs) talk about sea level changes unless you talk about land level changes. And you also have to question every measurement. And the modelers don't do this. They just blindly accept the number and uh, use complex mathematics to create a model to frighten us. Yeah, well, look, Jasper, sorry to butt in. I know you wanted to speak, but uh, that means next year, when you do your annual plan with your councillors, the zero rate for this, please, zero. As a, as a rate payer, I am taxpayer. I can't have any more expenditure on this stuff. Have you got that? Loud, loud and clear, sir. But <laughs> but but before before you let you go, Ian, you know, you were here with us in May, six months later. We're so happy to have you back again. In the interim, you emailed us with the, the when your books came out, mm. the set of the little green books. How are they doing? Well, uh, vo- volume one was written for kids eight to twelve, mm. and that's talking about the carbon cycle, how you eat food and I've used the American word cookies, and this is to show kids where food comes from. 
And so I'd go into farming and go into how you transport this food and you eventually make a cookie which you eat. It's got carbon-rich compounds. Those carbon-rich compounds actually make you grow. But you also have waste products. So I go into uh, poo and wee and farts and earwax and um, snot as <laughs> some of the waste carbon compounds. Now, eight-year-old kids just roll around laughing with this stuff, and that's what it was written for, to get a simple message um, about the net zero but using body functions. And the second one of the volumes, the um, it's for teenagers, and that's for 12 to 16. And this is dealing with the way teenagers think. And teenagers um, are getting scared witless at schools. So I go into all the scares that they get told, but in fact we're having more hurricanes. I just put up the data. No, it's not the case. We're getting more wildfires. Not the case. Um, and we're getting warmer and warmer temperatures. Not the case. And so I dispel all the myths they're getting told at school. And then teenage kids, as you know, often say, oh, that's not fair. So I go into what's fair <laughs> about driving an electric vehicle. And you're in that electric vehicle getting swanning around, feeling morally superior to others, yet to get the cobalt for your vehicle, kids your age are working in open pit and underground mines in, in the Congo. These kids are slaves. These kids uh, die underground. They die of cobalt poisoning. They die of rock falls in the open pit. Is that fair? And then I go into some of the um, periods of time in the past with cycles of climate. And when I get into the Little Ice Age, I would just point out that you kids are just so lucky mm -hmm. because you're living in a period of time when everyone in the world's gone nuts. And that doesn't happen very often. You are so lucky. People have just gone all mad. Now, we had that before with the Dutch tulip craze when people were paying two years' wages for one bulb. And Holland... <laughs> the economy collapsed and they went from one of the richest countries in the world to one of the poorest. And that was because of a fad and fashion run by fools and frauds. And you're living in the same time. So give them some numbers of, of um, temperatures in the little ice age and show when we had the lowest temperatures, we had crop failures. People died. People didn't have enough food. And of oh. course you had to blame someone. So we rounded up the witches and we killed them. So we rounded up women, called them witches, and we killed them. And I've got a graph showing the temperature against the number of witches that got killed. And as soon as we stopped killing witches, you know what happened? The temperature went up. <laughs> therefore, <laughs> therefore, witches were driving the weather. And I was saying, look, that's nuts. But aren't you lucky you're living in the same period of time where people are, are telling you plant food is, is driving the weather? So that's the volume two for the kids, uh, for the yes. teens, and volume three of the Little Green Book is basically a summary of the history of the planet of the Earth and uh, of planet Earth, and going into the great ice ages, the extinctions, and how we've got these massive cycles of climate. But also there are some odd things here, and on page one, I put up the argument that the moon is made of green cheese because in geophysics we can work out the speed of earthquake shock waves mm. and the speed is proportional to what material they go through. Now, you wouldn't believe it, but the speed of an earthquake shock wave in a moon rock is the same as the speed of an earthquake shock wave in Norwegian green cheese. Therefore, <laughs> the moon is, moon is made of green cheese, and by the way, it's a Norwegian green cheese. Give me evidence that you could find to show that I'm wrong. So I'm trying to get these people to think 
These are for the post 16 year olds, trying to get them to think the way scientists think that you use evidence from everywhere and put it together. And occasionally you've got to throw out a bit of evidence saying this is coincidental or it's a, a bad measurement or whatever. And of course, I go into electric vehicles and wind turbines. And uh, for the post 16 year olds, these are people who will be buying a car one day, who might, might be trying to struggle to buy a house and yeah. pointing out how stupid the economy is and why things are costing so much, and that's because of our energy policies. Now, that book is now, it came out in late August. It's in its third reprint. Uh, it has just been a runaway seller. Um, the Little Green Book was written to try to give parents and grandparents weapons to try to deprogram their kids with all the rubbish they get fed at school. A lot of kids are reading it, so um, people tell me, and it's written in a very relaxed and humorous style. Excellent. Well, fantastic, Ian. And, you know, um, hopefully people listening to this are thinking about stocking fillers for this Christmas. And, um, yeah, there, there's there's an option, the trilogy of books you've put out this year. Hey, Ian, I know you're under time constraint right now, and we're very, very grateful uh, for your time this evening. And um, it's not often we can talk about uh well, we love your wit, we love your charm, and we love your intellect, of course. And so thank you, and thank you for being on RCR Greenwashed again, and we look forward to having you back in the new year. All thank you for having me. Goodbye, Ian. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to RCR Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, just like what you're listening to. Either way, we want to hear from you. Get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057, that's 2057, or email us at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so connect with us today.